All right, let's just uh, turn to the Lord in prayer before we head into his word. Dear Father, thank you for uh, recording for us, I think especially of, of in this study we're in now, the, the things that happened in Jesus' life as he was here among us, uh, especially things that we can then turn around and, and learn from the same as his disciples did and others had the opportunity to that uh, as we come around and maybe hear them for not maybe maybe the first time, but maybe for uh, maybe it's been many many times we've heard these things, and yet you still have have truth. You still have wisdom for us, uh, an understanding for the life that you have uh, have provided for all those who will believe in in Jesus. And so I do pray for uh, that wisdom as I uh, speak about uh, this section of scripture, and I pray for your Spirit to. Uh, to apply it to each and every heart that uh, each one would uh, that's here today would would receive it and understand it, uh, understand it more fully than they have in the past, and and also see how it it fits with the life that they're living uh, right now in this time and this day. Uh, just thank you that we can be confident that you uh, will continue the work that you've begun in all those who belong to you, and and that you are. Uh, reaching out to to draw others to come to know you. Uh, so thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, in John chapter 6, um, and you may remember last week we uh, had the event where uh, Jesus has his disciples, as we said, kind of kind of sets them up, but sets them up for some learning. Sets them up for something good. As he leads them right into a situation where there's these thousands of people, 5,000 men, but maybe as many as 20,000 people out in the countryside, out away from where there's food. They can't afford to go buy enough food for all of them. Uh, their resources are very small. They've got five loaves, two fish. And Jesus kind of brings them, leads them to that recognition that they are in an impossible situation in their own strength. And then puts the 12 to work and uses them to provide food for that entire crowd out of just a few loaves, a few fish. And helps them, gives them an opportunity to understand that he is in fact the creator God. Because you don't have five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people without creating some more food, right? And so in that process, he does what only God can do and creates food for that crowd to eat. But he's not done teaching them. Uh, there's more preparation for them, more lessons for them to learn. And in fact, uh, in, in many ways, really what Jesus is doing here is he's getting them ready for some teaching that he's going to, to give after they get back into Capernaum, back to, to the city where they've been spending a lot of their time. And so there's another situation that Jesus has with his disciples and another interchange to kind of lead the crowds into what it is he really wants them to grasp and understand. So today you could say is sort of a, a prepara another preparation uh, session in what Jesus is doing. So follow along with me, if you would, as I read from John 6, verses 16 through 29. 
I'm going to back up to verse 15. gives you a little bit of how things finished up in the last section. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day the crowd stood on the other side of the sea where there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, and that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So Jesus, you could say, is actually starting another test. You remember uh, it said in the previous section that Jesus asked uh, Philip how they were going to be able to get enough bread for everyone. So he said he said this in order to test him because he knew what he was going to do. And you can really see Jesus setting up this situation for his disciples for their learning uh, because when they go and they, they get into the to the boat, and in, in John's account here, it just says the disciples went down to the sea and got into the boat and started to cross. Uh, Mark, in his gospel, in, in chapter 6, verse 45, uh, each of the gospels gives us a little bit different uh, angle on some of these things, but uh, Mark 6, 45 <clears throat> says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. So Jesus didn't just, didn't just sort of happen. Didn't, Jesus said, no, you need to go. Go without me. And he sent the crowd away. He went up on the mountain. And so he's really setting them up to be out on the sea at that particular time. He is ready to take them, hopefully, a little bit further, right? Now, to get the, a little bit of the lay of the land of where this is all happening, Natalia, if you, or Natalia Anna, if you could put the, uh, the map up there, or the picture there of, of the Sea of Galilee. Um, you know, it's a, a fairly small 
a sea or really more of a lake, but you can see over here, this is probably the, the area where he fed the 5,000 up in here. Bethsaida is right here where the, here the, here's the Jordan River coming in to form the sea. Um, Bethsaida is usually located on maps in this area. The city itself, the, or the village itself, doesn't really uh, exist anymore, um, but maybe in this big plain area. But you can see here, uh, you've got uh, the hills rising fairly quickly up out of the sea, okay? And so that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea, you know, of, of how things look. And uh, just to kind of give you an idea of what they're, what they're encountering, go ahead and go to the next slide. Uh, I think I've got the scale fairly close, but we've got the Sea of Galilee over here and Flathead Lake over here. And so you can see the Sea of Galilee could fit into this, this northern part of Flathead Lake. And so it's not really a, a sea in this case, in the sense that we usually think of the sea like the Mediterranean, but actually a, a large lake. And uh, I've never been on Flathead Lake. Anybody have experience out there on, on the water? Some of you do. Can it get a little rough sometimes? Okay. So maybe if you've been out there and you've seen some of that, you might have a little bit of an idea of what they're talking about. So um, go ahead and go back to the other slide for the rest of the of the time, you can have that as maybe a visual of, of where they're at. Um, but the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. Kind of odd to have a sea that's below sea level, but it's true. Um, the land to the east, uh, that area is just pointing out to you, rises about 2,000 feet above sea level. And so the prevailing winds then also come out of the Mediterranean. So on the one hand, you've got those big, the big rising uh, uh, hills over there to the, to the east, but you have prevailing winds coming out of the west off of the Mediterranean. At the same same time, you have you know the Jordan Valley, which is a north north south direction. And really, what that means is you could have all kinds of weird weather on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, you can have things come up and winds and storms that are that are very could be very unusual and, and could be threatening. Uh, yet on the other hand, it's not like being out on the ocean. Okay, so a lot of times you see the uh, the paintings and things of you know the boat and the, and the massive waves. Likely they didn't have that very often, although the, they had been in a situation with Jesus where they were afraid they were going to sink prior to this. Remember, Jesus calmed the waves, and so um, there was some some unpredictable weather. But I th actually, I think Jesus had been understood that they were going to have a hard time going from the east side of the lake over to near where Capernaum is, um, which is just, maybe see that up on the northern side here. So they're really just going across this northern part of the lake, but apparently had some pretty strong winds keeping them from heading west. Um, situation here, it was dark. Uh, they had a long day of, of Jesus that they They'd shown up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the people had followed them. Jesus, were, were told, if you put the different pieces of the, of the gospel accounts together, had done, spent some time teaching. And then they'd gone through the whole episode of feeding. And you know, I know some of you are very, very uh, experienced at feeding big groups, but I don't know if any of you have fed you know, ten to 20,000 people before. Probably took a good bit of time and and labor even just to distribute all that food. So they've come to the end of a very long, difficult day. It's getting dark, and Jesus sends them out on the sea. 
Now, the darkness wasn't a big deal because this group had several fishermen in it. And if you remember the, the situations where Jesus said, well, cast your net on the other side. You remember what they said? We've been out all night and didn't catch anything. So it wasn't unusual for them to be out on the sea at night. Um, but the wind was a challenge because it kept pushing against them. And Matthew and Mark both told us that the, the disciples rode until the fourth watch of the night, which means from the time it's getting dark until between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning, they've been trying to make this crossing of about 5 to 6 miles across the Sea of Galilee. And so they've been rowing and rowing and pushing and trying to, to get where they're going. And, and there's no indication that the, that the waves were threatening them, that they were going to sink, but they just couldn't make headway. They just kept pushing them the other direction. And so they were tired. They're frustrated. I mean, especially for those who weren't fishermen, you know, not used to out there rowing for hours on end. But, uh, you know, we were talking five, six hours of just trying to get where you're going and not being able to, probably being blown a bit off course uh, because the other Gospels tell us that they were in the middle of the lake. So not necessarily meaning that they went all the way down uh, to, the, to the exact middle, but they weren't near the edge where they were, they were really planning to be. So here they are. Guess what? Once again, at the end of their abilities, right? Once again, unable to accomplish what it was they wanted to do. They couldn't get to where they were going. And Jesus puts us in those situations, doesn't he? Maybe that's where you're at right now. Maybe Jesus has said, I'm going to let you go where you realize, I can't do this. And it's okay to say that, because it's true a lot more often than you think. Right? Pretty much all the time, we don't have the strength to do what we need to do. But there are times in our lives when God puts such circumstances in our lives just to, to enhance our understanding of our weakness. And he's done that with the disciples here. They've done all they could and still hadn't made it to land. And, and time has, has really passed by. And so when we get to verses 19 through 21, we really get to the heart of the situation that Jesus has with them. Where again it says, Then when they had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. And so here Jesus enters into their situation. If you turn back again with me to Mark chapter 6, verses 46 through 48. Kind of picks up where we left off. It says, After bidding them farewell, this is Jesus, he left for the mountain to pray. So he climbs up on some of the, that higher land there to the east. And when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. So here's Jesus speaking to his father, right? Talking about the, well, who knows what all, but I'm guessing he's talking to his father about his disciples, right? That's where his next, next place he's going. And he says, Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. 
Let's go ahead and read verse 49 too. He says, when he saw them walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. So here they're, they're put in this situation. Jesus seems can see the little boat out there on the lake. He's up, up above things. It would have been a full moon because we're told earlier in the chapter that it was almost the Passover. And the Passover is marked by a full moon. And so it would seem as though he's looking out and he's saying, oh, there they are. They're out there in the middle. They've been rowing. I've been up here praying for quite a while. They're still rowing. They're still rowing. The wind is still blowing, right? And so here we've, we've got them on this large lake. What's Jesus going to do? Well, he, he, he takes off walking across the waves. He goes to them. They're in their place of impossibility. And Jesus does the impossible, right? They can't row across the lake the normal way. Jesus chooses to do what none of them can do in their own strength. And, and we're told back in John that they saw Jesus. And it's interesting, John uses a word there that doesn't mean to glance at or a casual look, but to look at with interest. Talks about observation of carefully of details, which makes sense because they've never seen anybody walking across the lake before. Right? And what's their first assumption? They, they, oh, this is some sort of a supernatural spiritual spook or something, right? They don't say, oh, Jesus, you caught up with us. No, they're like, they're terrified. And in their exhaustion, maybe you can't blame them too much. But they suddenly went from straining against the waves to being completely absorbed in who this figure was that was coming across the waves. And it says, back in Mark, notice, Jesus looked like he was just going to pass them by. Can you imagine what that must have been like? But he's got their attention now, doesn't he? And one of the things that maybe they didn't think of just yet, but I think as they thought through this, and reviewed over it. And remember, John is writing this to us from decades in the future. But I think the point he wanted them to get right off was that, that God is the only one who rules the seas. God is the only one who can control the nature of matter so that you can actually walk on that which is liquid, right? And I think probably over time, as they thought back about that, and as they, they read through the other scriptures, they realized, oh, that, that we sh this makes sense with what we saw. So let's just look at some of those passages out of the Old Testament that they, they would have had available to them. Job chapter 9. Job does a lot of reflecting on the nature of God as he's struggling through his difficulties. <clears throat> and so let's start at verse 2, the beginning of the chapter. Uh, it says, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be right before God? See, Job's friends have been telling him, well, all these terrible things have happened to you because you've sinned in some way. And Job's thinking, reflecting on the nature of God and what he's like. And he lists a number of different things related to that. Then he gets to verse 8 and he says of God, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. And uh, 
I don't, that gives me a whole new image of Jesus walking on the water. Right? Nobody else controls creation like he does, but tramples down the waves of the sea. I've always wondered what it looked like for Jesus to walk on waves. I mean, if it was clear, you know, smooth as glass, I got a pretty good picture. But when you got the waves continually moving and rising and up and down, and yet here it says, God can trample on the waves. Does that mean when he put his foot down, it just went into place? You know? That seems a lot more likely to me than him scrambling around to try to find footing on, on top of a wave. I think the creation served the creator. It's like, here's something you need to know, Jesus says through his actions. I'm the one that made these, these waves. I'm the one that created their, their ability to move and be fluid, but I can also make them hold up that which is solid if I want to. Yeah, they're moving and, and, and all that, but if I want them to serve me and flatten out in front of me, that can happen too. Don't know. John didn't tell us those things. But he is the creator, so it makes you wonder how the creator went about that. I'll turn over a little bit in your Bible then to, to Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9, for another perspective there on, on God and, and the sea. <clears throat> there it says, O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling sea of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who can do that? Only God. I've never seen any human being be able to do that, but Jesus as the God-man, he could make them be still for them, for him. They'd already had an experience where he told the waves to be still. But only God, God alone, is able to do that. He wants his disciples, catch this truth about me. Only God rules the sea. Then continue on to Psalm 107, verses 28 through 30. It says, speak, speaking of people who go down to the sea in ships, it says, they reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wits' end. I might be the disciples in this situation, right? They were at the end of their abilities and probably very frustrated. Verse 28, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be stilled so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their des desired haven. Again, they've already had Jesus calm the sea once for them. You might notice at the end, and I'll mention this again, but when Jesus gets into the boat, it says immediately they were at the place they were headed to. Who else but God fits what Psalm 107 talks about? 
Jesus just falls right in to what the scriptures say about God related to the seas. He's giving them a, a clear demonstration that they're going to need as he begins his teaching time later that same day to grasp and understand what they truly need to know. Not just how to get food, but in fact, how to do what really matters. And so when we come back in, in John chapter 6 to verse 20, they're frightened. Their, their, their imaginations have gotten the best of them. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid, or literally stop being afraid. You've been in a state of fear. Stop. Get out of that ongoing state of fear that you're in. And Mark uh, 4, 35 through 41, we're not going to turn there, but we, I've been mentioning this. Jesus had previously calmed the storm. When they'd been, remember, they'd been out on, on, the, on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus falls asleep in the back and a storm comes up and the waves are coming over the top of their, of their boat and they're afraid they're going to go under. And they wake him up and they say, Master, don't you care that we're about to drown, that we're all going to die? Remember, Jesus rebukes the waves and the sea becomes totally calm. In that case, he calmed the sea. In this case, he calms the disciples. Notice he said to them, you calm down. You stop being afraid. You make yourselves not afraid. He gives them an instruction for calmness based on what? It is I. Or you can literally translate that, I am. Now there's, there's a good bit of, of debate over where, whether he meant in that moment to use the name of God, and declare that he, in fact, is God. John will, will, will have those words coming out of Jesus' mouth a number of times in the rest of the gospel. Um, in fact, you know, later on, he'll say, before Abraham was, I am, clearly using that, that name of God, Yahweh. Um, he will say, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. Here he says, do not be afraid, I am. Or it is I. Is he just identifying himself so that they know who he is? Maybe. But what he did certainly says, I am. Only the creator God, Yahweh, can do what I've just done. So I guess I don't have a problem with the idea that he was saying, I am, using that, that name. And so they get into the boat, verse 21. It says they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now John leaves out the whole part about, about Peter saying, if it's you, call me to come walk on, on the waves, right? It's not important to what John's, the point John's making, but it does help us to, to debunk some of the things people say. Some people say that when it says Jesus was walking on the sea, that same preposition can say he was he was walking by the sea, and they just thought he was walking on the sea. Uh, but the whole incident with Peter doesn't make any sense, right? He says, come, let me, tell me to walk on the sea. So did Peter start sinking into the ground next to the sea? I don't think so. Besides, Mark told us, if you remember, that they were in the middle of the sea. They weren't right along the edge of the sea where they would see Jesus walking. Okay, And, and just important details, because when people don't want to accept who Jesus truly is, 
they start looking desperately for ways to explain him away. As just a good teacher, just a man, just somebody who had his things that, that he did that we should, we should see as a good example. No, he, he came and he demonstrated, and he told us very clearly that he is God. And also notice how this miracle seems to be capped off. Seems to be that there's a demonstration here of God's power over space and time because it says once he got into the boat, immediately they were at the place where they were going. They've been working all night long, working, working, working. And yes, maybe they weren't terribly far away from the shore. But now it says Jesus got in the boat and they were there. What they couldn't do through all the hours of the night, Jesus accomplishes in an instant. Not only that, but Matthew, his account tells us that when he got into the boat that the wind stopped. So everything about this incident says to the disciples, take note of who this man is. He's not just a man. He is the one who rules the sea, the waves, space, time. He is he is. So verse 21, they get, they, they're in the boat. They go to where they're, they're headed. And Jesus is, I think, finishing the lesson that began with the feeding of the 5,000. Now these men should have more fully grasped that the act of creating all that food for the crowds was only something that God could do. And if we go back to Mark chapter uh, 6, again, verses 51 and 52. And it describes how, how the, the incident ends for them. It says, he got into the boat with them, and the wind was stopped, and they were utterly astonished. Would you be utterly astonished? I probably would be something I'd never seen. But Mark goes on to say why they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. The implication there is, is after having seen Jesus multiply all that, uh, that food, they shouldn't have been so amazed that he could rule over the sea, that he could stop the wind and the waves. And this is probably, I think I mentioned this last week, Peter's perspective. Peter looked back, I think, passed that on to Mark, because Peter was the one that was there. Mark wasn't there. And said, yeah, I should have known. Shouldn't have surprised me at all. I should have been in awe, yes. Should have worshipped him, yes. But I should have known he could do that after I'd seen him actually create huge amounts of food. And I believe this is again done to help them to have their hearts softened because they weren't ready to hear what he was going to teach them in Capernaum along with the people who follow him there. He wants them to have in their, in their minds, this is not just a good teacher. This is not just someone that we should follow in order to have a better life. But God himself is, is among us. If, if we look in, in Matthew's account, Matthew 14, 33, 
to the next page here. 1433, it says, And those who were in the boat, in this incident, worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. That's what he was trying to, where he was trying to get them to go. Did they fully understand that yet? I don't think so. But they'd taken a step in the right direction. They'd moved to, to, to a point of, of again saying, you're, you're not just any man, but you are in fact God's son. Therefore, remember back in chapter 15 what Jesus got in trouble in, with the leaders in Jerusalem about? He said God was his own father, therefore making himself equal with God. Well, they've got every reason now to realize, yes, in fact, he is equal with God. He deserves not just respect of a rabbi or a teacher, but he deserves to be worshipped. There's, a, there's a, an amazing awe or holy fear that they have. So they've gone from being terrified of some sort of a, of a weird spiritual being out there on the water to having a reverential awe and bowing down in worship before Jesus. They're starting to get where they need to be. But Jesus has now helped them to be ready to understand what he's going to teach them in the rest of, of what, is, what is chapter 6 of John's Gospel. Well, that's not the end of things because there were all those people there, right? They'd all eaten. And verses 22 through 24 gives us kind of the transition for, for those people. So if we go back to uh, John's Gospel, <clears throat> verse 22, it says, The next day the crowd that stood, stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they'd gotten a full meal, right? They'd actually gotten completely satisfied in their food, with their food. And I think they get up the next morning, they probably kind of had to camp out on that side of the lake because it was late. It was like, okay, where's Jesus? It's time for breakfast. Right? We saw he had some leftovers. If he could do, do all that with five loaves and two fishes, or 12 baskets of leftovers, we're, we're set, right? But you look around, no Jesus, no disciples. One boat gone, but they knew that the disciples in front of Jesus, where'd Jesus go? Well, they've got, got a new kind of motivation. They head out. They say, there's some boats that show up. Some of them take the boats. Others, I'm sure, walk. But they, they head for Capernaum. That's where Jesus had been spending a lot of his time, where a lot of his miracles were done. And so they go to find him in Capernaum. And so, what's going to happen next? Well, they find Jesus, verse 25, on the other side of the sea. Um, they probably found him in or near the synagogue, because verse 59, when we get down through the end of the things that he teaches to the group of people that find him, it says these things he taught while in the synagogue. So that seems to be where they caught up with him when he begins, maybe begins the interchange outside of the synagogue and then they move inside or it begins while he's teaching in this synagogue. But this sets the scene, scene for an extended time of teaching that we're going to be, be on for, for a while in the next weeks ahead. It's going to greatly impact those who have, who have begun to follow Jesus 
And it's even going to challenge his 12 disciples and their allegiance. Will they continue to follow him? Will they stick with him? Even when he says things that are really hard to, to grasp, really hard to accept. Jesus, in this, this section of teaching that we'll be looking at in the weeks ahead, is going to take things to a whole new level. Say, are you really ready to follow me in this way? But their thoughts aren't there. Verse 25, they ask, Rabbi, when did you get here? They missed, they missed the good meal, right? Well, how'd you get here, Jesus? And Jesus answers in verse 26 and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Jesus goes right to their motivation. He doesn't answer their question. They said, when did you get here? It's irrelevant, right? It doesn't really matter. The whole issue of, of the walking on the wall, that was for his disciples. And then for all those who would read about it later, like us, right? To help us to know. But he says, here's why you're here. Let me tell you why you followed me. Why you took all that time to, to either take a boat or to walk around the end of the Sea of Galilee. You want the material benefits that you gained. You liked the food. You got full. And you want more. So you were willing to to take that time, make that effort. Now, originally their motivation was what? They'd seen miracles, they'd seen healings. It was like, Lord, I want healed too. Are those bad things? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be fed? No, not in and of themselves. But when those become your primary motivation, you really want to say to them, you're, you're on the wrong track. There's something far greater here than what you're after. And so it's really important to evaluate, I think, even for us. Why are you following Jesus? Why are you following Jesus? Is it because of what you get, material in this world? Because he provides for your daily needs? Because he provides for your emotional needs? Because he provides things of this life? Those aren't bad things. But does it go any deeper than that? Does it go any fuller than that? Jesus gets to all of your thoughts, your actions, and to the heart of your motivations. In verse 27, he says, there's a better reason. He doesn't say stop following me. He says, but there's more to this. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, the Father... God has set his seal. In other words, don't spend your life just chasing after food. It's going to be here today. It'll be gone tomorrow. You'll, you'll find more, right? They need to eat to live, but they shouldn't live to eat. They shouldn't live to find just the basics of life. He says there's more to you and there's more to me than that. Jesus wants them to look beyond their daily provision and nourishment. God does provide that. And he usually provides it through work, right? And so he's not saying stop working. But he's saying 
What are your priorities? What are your motivations? Are you only living to make money, to provide for your table, for your house? Look a little higher. In fact, if you remember back in, in Matthew 6, 26, earlier he had, had taught them to look, take a look at the birds. He says, look at the birds of the air, for they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your fa heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And the whole point of that section is, stop worrying. God will provide. God will take care of you. So get your eyes on the provider instead of on the provisions. Work for something more. In other words, focus your energy there. Get the food that brings eternal life. Jesus wants them to consider what they lack that will feed their souls so that they can have real life. Life that doesn't end, but also life that is full and complete. He points directly to himself. He says, it's, who's going to give you this, this food that will give you eternal life? Oh, the Son of Man. He will give it to you. Oh, suddenly reminds them, you're in, you're in another impossible place, just like you were out there on the other side of the lake. There was no food for you. What did you do? Well, you had, to, you had to be dependent on me. In the same way, you have to be dependent on me to give you what you need in order to live forever. I gave you what you needed to live for another day and food, but I am the one, calls himself the Son of Man, which echoes back to, to Daniel, right, talking about the Messiah. I'm the one who gives you the, what will help you to live forever, will cause you to live forever. He urges them to stop and look at the things that happened as signs. He says, you didn't come because you saw signs. If they had come because they saw signs, they'd say, well, what do the signs point to? Well, the signs point to the one who is God, who creates, and that's who I am. They've missed the point of the food altogether. So verses 28 and 29 follows up. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? In other words, what? well, just tell us, what is the work that, that helps us to get eternal life? Rather than lifting up their eyes to the Son of God, they fixate on that word work, right? He says, don't work for this kind of food, but work for the other kind. Oh, work, we, oh, we like that word. Uh, well, just tell us, Jesus, we'll do the work. And it's just, it's like an echo of Exodus 24, verse 3, when, Mo, when Moses came and told them the things that God had been telling him. Verse 20, Exodus 24, verse 3, it says, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. So confident in themselves. Just tell us what to do, God, and we'll do it. How'd that work? Not so well, did it? Yeah, immediately, I mean, not too long after, they, they, they build a, a golden calf to worship and engage in all kinds of immorality and, and sin. I kind of hear that echo here in the people. Well, just tell us what the work is so we can have eternal life. We'll do it. And then Jesus gives this, this statement in verse 29, which is going to really be the point of all the rest of his teaching. So 
grab hold of this. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work, or you can maybe say the focus of God, the work that God has for you, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Where do you want, where, where should the focus of your life be? It should be in believing on the one that the Father sent. Be believing, and he, and he uses a present tense verb, not just believe in me right now at this moment, but enter into a state of believing in me. Because I came from the Father, and I've demonstrated to you that I'm doing the same works that the Father is doing. Your job now is to be in a state of belief in me so that I can give you what you need for eternal life. The one, this is what he's going to be explaining all the way down now until verse 58 of this chapter. One thing they are to do if they want eternal life is to enter into a life of trusting the one that God sent, Jesus himself. He can give them the, the spiritual nourishment, you could say, so that they can live forever. He's the one who can make them right when they've fallen short of what their ancestors had said. Oh, whatever you say, we will do. Well, Jesus can give them what they need, even though they've failed at that miserably their whole lives. And Jesus is so good to persistently point us in the right direction. And he prepares our hearts by giving us opportunities to realize that we don't have within ourselves what we need, right? He keeps coming back again and again saying, you're weak, you're without, but I'm here to provide what you truly need. Get your eyes on me. Put your faith in me to give you what you truly need. So in the teaching that he begins here, he will intensify and focus on that truth. He'll clarify what it means and help them and us to have an opportunity to understand that believing in him is no half-hearted thing. He will call us all to be completely in with him. So I urge you today, and before we come back together again in, in John chapter 6, to take some time to contemplate where you are at as far as believing in him. Are, are you fully believing in the one that God sent? In what ways are you still believing in yourself or in something else more? And I'm saying that to people who have entered into faith in Christ. Do we have sometimes a problem with believing him like we ought to, even in our walk with Jesus as people who are totally saved? We do, don't we? Jesus is going to challenge that. Are you really all in with him. Because here's your focus. Be believing in Jesus. Be believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you've given us uh, so much here, and I believe you are preparing us as well for what is coming in the, in the verses that follow. But I do pray you'd help us to contemplate and think about where our, our faith at, is at, whether 
whether there's someone here who hasn't ever put their faith in Jesus to begin that believing relationship of eternal life. Or for others of us who we've walked with Jesus, knowing that we have eternal life in him, but but believing daily uh, so that, that we will act and, and speak and live in a way that matches is often pretty different than what we profess. So, Father, I pray that you'd, you'd just be at work by your Spirit, preparing us even more for uh, the words that come in the next section, um, that we would uh, be primed, with a, a better understanding of our own selves, our own weakness, but also primed and ready to, to see Jesus more fully as God. And for you, as all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, one that can be completely trusted and who loves us completely. Father, thank you for uh, giving us this, this scripture that by which we can have our attention lifted up not just on the things of this world, but on, on the things that you want us to see and to know and to grasp. Thank you for that in Jesus' name.